You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylists, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylists.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, and coming up on this week's show, I'll be talking to Paul Carr, tech journalist, author, and co-founder of Chairman Mom, an online community for working women. Paul gets brutally honest about the state of Silicon Valley and reveals how we can fight back against toxic tech. I'll also be talking to Rob Smith, founder of gender-free fashion platform The Fluid Project, about how brands can embrace genderless consumer engagement. And stick around to the end for our next big opportunity feature, where we highlight a vital consumer need or challenge that's yet to be solved. But first, we kick off with the innovation of the week, where we showcase the one big new innovation you need to know about right now. This week, it's chocolateless chocolate. Stylist US editor Emilia Morano-Williams explains all. So German startup QOA is a biotech company, and they're developing a sustainable alternative to chocolate. They're actually making a cocoa-free confection and using precision fermentation to do so. So precision fermentation is a method that's becoming increasingly popular with food brands who are looking to make foods that are analogous to the ones we know and love, but don't require natural resources. So cultured meat is one of the biggest examples of this at the moment. At its most basic, precision fermentation means that scientists are taking compounds that aren't something, in this case, that aren't chocolate, putting them into a bioreactor and fermenting them. You can think of the bioreactor kind of like a large tank used for brewing beer. For QOA, they then roast this fermented mass just like you would roast conventional cocoa beans. Obviously, it's all a little bit more complicated than that to make this new product, especially in order to make sure that it actually tastes like chocolate, which we all have a really strong taste memory of. To do so, QOA actually mapped all the different flavors, aromas, textures, and other properties that consumers expect to find when they take a bite of chocolate. I think an interesting question here is, you know, why go through all of this trouble to make a new type of chocolate when we have something that's perfectly good and tasty? It might be tasty, but it actually would leave a bit of a bitter taste in our mouth if we knew the truth, because chocolate may be one of our most loved luxuries, but it's also an industry that is under threat. It's under threat from climate change. There's the ethical implications of cocoa farming, which tend to rely on child labor and underpaid workers. As consumers become more aware of the impact of their food choices and the impact these food choices have on the world, there is increasing opportunity for companies to come in and add more ethical, sustainable models for growing cocoa and making chocolate to connect with these conscious consumers. As concerns about the negative impact of social media continue to dominate headlines, what can be done about toxic tech? To answer this question, I spoke to journalist and author Paul Carr. Paul began his career as a tech writer for The Guardian and TechCrunch before co-founding Pando Daily with Sarah Lacey. Paul and Sarah now run Chairman Mom, an online community for working women, and Paul's about to release his first novel. I used to be a huge, used to be hugely bullish on technology. When I first wrote for The Guardian, my beat tended to be the sort of telling big companies and big established groups why technology was going to destroy them, and that was a good thing. And then over time, particularly at TechCrunch, when I was, you know, a judge for the TechCrunch uh, Disrupt Startup Competition, and I would see these new startups coming through. 
And I felt a bit like the kid in the emperor's new clothes, except the emperor didn't just have no clothes. He was threatening to kill everyone. You know, and I would say, don't you see? This is terrible. This company that's going to disrupt healthcare is going to do so at the cost of thousands of lives or even just small stuff. I remember a company that boasted that it was going to uh, create an app that allowed you to use your social media juice, whatever it was, your followers to threaten small businesses that weren't giving you the service you wanted. And they were just like, no, it'll improve service for everyone because you can say, look, I have 100,000 followers. And if you don't give me what I want, you know, I can destroy you. And I remember standing on stage and saying, so basically it's a protection racket. And they're, they're just looking at me with this blank expression of no, no one's ever told us this before. What do you mean? And, and all these investors on stage going, he raises an interesting point. And you just realize that this cult of disruption, and that's what really changed everything when everyone started talking about disruption, had no thought for the potential consequences of any of this stuff. So yeah, my opinion changed because the facts changed, because people became rewarded for being sociopaths. What did you do after this period? Were you thinking about, well, how can I actually make a, a, a real difference here? So for a long time, it did feel like I, I, I and then Panda were sort of these lonely voices talking about it. But now everybody's a tech critic. And so for me, it's become, okay, how do I actually help make change. Sarah and I started a company um, called Chairman Mom, which is a community for professional working women and working parents to get help and advice, which is basically a non-toxic social network. Because trying to ask for advice as a working woman or a working parent on the internet is just, you know, or as a woman generally, you're just painting a target on your head. So part of it's, you know, building companies that are not toxic. You can't just complain about the ones that exist. The way to get venture capital, the venture capital goes, you know, 97% or whatever it is, goes to white and Asian men in, in Silicon Valley. The rest of it's kind of divided up as a little pie between people of uh, people of color who are not Asian men and women. And, you know, so if you're a, a black woman in Silicon Valley trying to raise money is next to impossible to build a company. And then we wonder why these things are so toxic for people of color, for minorities, for, for women. And so a big part of it is also how can we build companies that have female leadership and, and people of color leading them so that when those companies get huge, the money that the people who founded the make can then get invested into companies like that. There's just such an institutional change that has to happen. It seems like there is something changing, that there are people talking more and more about this. Do you, do you feel that there is an improvement happening or, or is there still a huge battle to fight? I think there are lots and lots of companies now who that are, are sort of founding themselves on much more ethical principles, much more inclusive principles, and also are just building in the guardrails that, that companies never built in, deliberately didn't build in, because, because conflict equals engagement equals valuation. You know, So yes, there's a great number of companies reacting to that. There's a lot of venture capital firms who are talking a good game about bringing in female partners, bringing in you know, people of color into the venture capital fold. That said, it, it is turning an oil tanker around and the oil tanker is captained by billionaires who are, it is massively in their self-interest for things not to change. I feel like there's definitely a, a shift over the past couple of years, especially with the younger generation, where social media users are splitting off into niches and gathering around much, much smaller sort of digital campfires. Is, is that something which feels like it could be threatening to the, to the sort of hegemony of the of the big giants, or are they just going to sort of hoover all that up anyway? I mean, you, the end of your question answers it. You know, Facebook acquires anything good, anything threatening. Again, this is why we need institutional change, because anything good that comes up and becomes this reaction to big tech surveillance, the big tech just buys it. And I'm sorry, but it's hard for a 27-year-old, whatever, who's built this thing to resist the call of Mark Zuckerberg. They have principles until a billion dollars is on the line. And then suddenly, 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be cynical, but the fact is a lot of these companies have investors and the investors say you need to do this. And so they do it. Talk to me about the, the, the companies or the startups you're seeing that you are excited by and do think are, are, are going to sort of have a future beyond the beast. As a category, I'm really excited by the number of companies that are aiming communities, particularly they're aiming at sort of women, people of color, groups, groups that have traditionally not been, I say groups, it's like most of the world, but who have not been embraced and welcomed or even treated with basic dignity by by Silicon Valley. You know, I talked about Chairman Mom, which is the company that Sarah and I started, but there's also companies like Winnie, which make it much easier for, for working parents to find childcare, you know, and during the pandemic, that's so important. But there's a lot of these communities growing up that are becoming very big and very valuable. I think as a category, the sort of private slash supportive, mutually supportive communities for previously marginalized groups of society. It, that excites me. I'm very bullish on that, that type of thing. I'm also bullish, I have to say, on on a lot of the innovations around publishing, you know, as an author, um, seeing companies like Readsy. I, I really love Readsy at the moment. So Readsy is a British company, actually. It's a marketplace for authors to find editors, cover designers, people like that, to publish their own books and just get out of the publishing treadmill altogether and just make good books directly available to the world. Very excited by that because it occurs to me it's one of the few marketplaces that is unequivocally good. Like it's just, it's putting more books into the world. What's, what's not to love? So when's your book out? What's it called? Where can we get it? Etc. My book is called 1414 Degrees, as in 1414 and the degree sign, which makes it very hard to search for on Amazon. So you have to search my name. It's out on October 11th and it's a novel. It's a thriller set in Silicon Valley about a serial killer who is targeting tech billionaires who are probably worthy of targeting and a female journalist who starts out trying to find this killer and ends up thinking to herself, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if they succeed and maybe I could be helpful in this this quest. If you want to know how Silicon Valley really is, I would recommend picking it up. If you want a light beach read that's going to make you feel good about the world, maybe, maybe there's something else for you though. More from Paul later in the show. Next up, I speak to Rob Smith from The Fluid Project, one of our stylist changemakers, who are individuals and organisations we think are using innovative thinking to drive positive change in the world. Here's Rob on what Fluid's all about and what brands can learn from his experience of bringing genderless fashion to the mainstream. The Fluid Project is a brand that's grounded in gender-free fashion, education, community, activism. It's a brand that allows people to be the authentic selves and specifically folks who are gender expansive and gender expressive. And my background is over 30 years in uh, traditional retail. So that was my day job at night. My job was working with nonprofits and supporting specifically LGBTQ youth. And I just decided that there was an opportunity to merge the two together. As soon as it, the idea came to me, I opened 10 months later, the world's first gender-free store. Two-thirds of it was showcasing to the world that fashion can be ungendered. And this, whether it's a dress or a jean or a lipstick, that there is no need to draw gender lines, let people express themselves how they want to. And the other third part of the store was a leisure seating, community space, coffee shop during the day. We hosted about 250 events in that space. And it was from conversations and panels and fashion shows and comedy night. And, you know, it was really a very cool place to bring community together. But people are taking the opportunity, if you have a space, a physical space, and knowing the big shift uh, toward online direct-to-consumer, there's an opportunity to take a physical space and bring community together 
but also to create content. We're all looking for content, 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 content. If you can bring people together and capture that content and then share it, you really start to create a really interesting narrative that is unique to your brand. So now we're strictly online, the store closed. So now our, our presence now is, is online and 30, 40 brands we're in, we're growing. And we curate and look for brands that are queer-owned, you know, women-owned, BIPOC-owned, trans-owned. And then we look for their, their values and their purpose and what they're doing and why they're creating it. I'm working with a lot of retailers who want to enter the space with integrity and attention and, and do it right. There are a lot of retailers now entering this space in a completely inauthentic way. They're entering this space in the unisex space. And what that means is they're basically taking men's clothes and putting it on men and women and saying that this is uh, all gender product. It's not just about allowing girls who are gravitating to the men's department. They don't. They, they don't need to feel comfortable. They're already fine doing it, you know. But it's 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 allowing this space for all people to feel safe. Now the next big opportunity. This is where we look at consumer needs and gaps in the market that still need to be addressed by brands, businesses, and startups. I asked Paul Carr for his thoughts. I think there's a huge opportunity for companies to make non-toxic social networks. I think the people want those. It's going to require their money and resources so that they don't just get bought by Facebook at the first opportunity. We have to have a counterbalance to that stuff. And it has to be well-funded and and independent and you know from Facebook. People want something better. The, the big frustration in politics is this idea that the other side was supposed to be better, whichever your other side is, was supposed to be better, and they're not. People will reward somebody who comes in and does unequivocally good things to fix these problems and just says, you know, we support niceness and non-toxicity. You will be rewarded with lots of money. I spoke to Alex Hawkins, Stylus' senior editor of Pop Culture and Media, about all this. When you look at some of the language used to describe the turn away from mainstream social media, you start to get a sense of some of the attitudinal shifts behind the trend. Words like digital campfires, antisocial social media, post-social media, and even small social. What each of those terms is really describing is the rise of closed community platforms and private messaging networks. So one example being the sort of curated private servers on chat platforms like Discord. In terms of responding to some of these changes, part of the issue with big social networks is that they're trying to be everything to everyone. So there are two main areas of opportunity that I would highlight. Firstly, both platforms and brands need to nurture niches and enable people to break out into subgroups. An interesting example of this is Column, which is a US platform that calls itself an information network rather than a social network. And Column lets people subscribe to different closed forums and trending conversations. The other big opportunity is the unbundling of platforms. And by this, what I mean is that a key driver behind the trend towards more social comes down to a growing divide between creator platforms where you go to be entertained and platforms you use to communicate with friends or connect over shared interests. And so what I think we're going to see alongside the shrinking of social media is the splintering of platforms themselves. That's it for this edition of Future Thinking. I hope you enjoyed it and I'd love to hear your feedback. On Twitter, we're at stylus underscore live, and I'm at Christian Ward. And on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Stylus. See you next time. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.